I am really uh, pleased to be with you. I've been thinking about this particular psalm uh, a lot. In fact, I was working on this sermon even over vacation just because I couldn't get uh, this psalm out of my mind. And in fact, if you want even a little more of a small tidbit, I test drove a little bit of this for a devotional I gave at my dad's church. Actually, the Saturday that we were with my dad, my dad got me roped into a lot of different things, and I was giving a men's devotional on Saturday. So uh, I had to earn my keep, I guess, somehow. Um, but no, uh, so I was thinking about this psalm, and I just couldn't get it out of it, and so I'm ex- I was very excited for tonight so I could preach it for you. Uh, the title of it is, is, you might be raising an eyebrow, only because the firmest foundation isn't, of course correct grammatically. Uh, If you want to be a grammar Nazi, it should be the most firm foundation, I think. Um, But firmest, I think, fits uh, only because I think firmest gives us a sense of the fact that we have the firmest foundation for our faith in the words of God, in the truth of God, in the person of God, in God himself. And I think this will come out a lot more clearly as we go through this psalm. But this text tonight sees in Psalm, in Psalm 11, sees, of course, King David, the, the most prolific of all of the psalm writers, on the receiving end of some pretty bad advice, pretty pitiful counsel that is told to him. Notice again verse 1. It says, in the Lord, David confesses, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? These three verses, uh, excepting the first two little phrases there, where it says, flee like a bird all the way to the end, like of, uh, to the end of verse 3, constitute this advice that David's quote-unquote friends give him. His peers are giving this counsel to him, flee like a bird to your mountain. The gist of their advice is basically that whatever David's situation was, whatever situation the friends have found themselves in, it is a situation of such incredibly awful circumstances that he might as well just flee like a little defenseless bird away to his mountain because, after all, what can the righteous do? What, what are we to do in circumstances like these? His friends are... Revealing the fact that everything is of such dire consequence that there's nothing they can do about it. And you might as well get out of Dodge. That's their advice. Why are you still here, David? Why are you still here in your place? Flee. Get out of the town. Get out of there. That's the sentiment of these, again, so-called friends. All of the very comfortable, very familiar supports of life are starting to crumble and crack. That's what that phrase means. If the foundations are destroyed, the, meaning the foundations of life, all of the mainstays that we know and can count on in life, if those are beginning to crumble, what can we even do about it? What can the upright do? 
If the foundations of society, they see them and they see them plunging into ruin. What can the godly do in such a scenario? What hope do the upright, do the righteous have when all of the moorings of life, the things that fasten us and keep us secure, keep us stable, when those are disintegrating, what can we do? These friends come up with the reasoning that, well, we can't do anything. What can the righteous do after all? So we might as well, let's flee. Let's flee like birds. You might as well flee like birds. There's nothing you can do about it anyways. That's their advice. (laughs) Really encouraging advice, which actually all it does is sound a lot more like the sky is falling. That's what this council sounds like. The sky is falling. We need to get out of here. It's defeatist. It's a, 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 a word that we could describe it as is, is fatalistic. It just seems as everything is just falling apart. You know, I, I, I love Lord of the Rings, so I had to include this little anecdote from Lord of the Rings in here. Because it reminds me of what King Theoden says in the Lord of the Rings book, The Two Towers. If you remember, if you've read the Lord of the Rings stories, in the middle of the middle volume of J.R.R. Tolkien's wonderful works is called The Two Towers. And in this, there's this scene called The Helm's Deep. And there's this country, this country is called Rohan, and they find themselves facing this massive army of warriors that is coming for one precise purpose, to wipe them out. So all the Rohan uh, soldiers and, and cavalry, they flee to this mountain fortress where they hope to, uh, per se, make their final stand. And their final stand is made up of an army of old men and very young boys. Things look very desperate and dire for all of the nation of Rohan. Leading their king, King Thaden, to say this, he laments, quote, All that was once strong now proves unsure. How shall any tower withstand such numbers and such reckless hate? That, I think, is the sentiment of these friends. How can we make a stand here? How can we withstand such reckless hate? Look at everything that's happening. We might as well flee. How can we withstand such numbers? How can we withstand when the wicked have their bows already bent with arrows notched on the string ready to loose at us? What can the righteous do in such situations? Everything seems Like it's already decided. Imminent defeat. Destruction. What can the righteous do? These friends, if you can call them that again, sound as if they've already sort of resigned or surrendered themselves to this fate. Do they not? They say again, notice, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Their sentiment is as if it's already assured. Again, it's that sentiment, the sky is falling. And we can't do anything about it. You know, I have to confess, I'm, a, I'm, really, I'm really tired of that sort of rhetoric. The sky is falling, everything's falling apart, the foundations are being destroyed. You know, I've read, a, I, I was going to cite some of them, but I decided against it. I, I've been reading even non, or, uh, non-secular, so Christian uh, news resources and blogs and articles and all that kind of stuff. 
And if you read certain outlets, if I didn't know better, I would be made to believe that there's no hope for the church. <laughs> certain Christian resources, I won't name, but they, they sound as if society is so bad. What can the righteous do? They, they make it appear as if everything is disintegrating to just abject ruin. And if I didn't know better, I would think that there's nothing at all that the church can do. So why are we here? Why do, what, what, what purpose do we serve? We might as well flee like birds to mountains. I think, number one, I'm really kind of tired of that rhetoric. Because we have the command in Matthew chapter 16. What does Jesus say to Peter? That on this rock, the rock of the confession, that he is the Christ. I will build my church. And what does he say after that? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No matter what comes down the pike in the history of the world, in the history of the church, we know one thing for certain, that the church will not be overcome by no matter what happens in society at large. The society cannot overcome the church because he says that even hell itself can't overcome the church. And yet, I've been somewhat just exhausted reading certain Christian, they are Christian. I shouldn't have air quoted that. They are Christian, but they just have an interesting view of the way things are transpiring. I say all that to say because what David expresses here is not something that's foreign to us. He says, how can you say this to me? Notice he says, and he asks a question. He's asking him a question about what they've given him as their advice, their counsel. How can you tell me that we should just flee like birds because of the situation, because of the circumstances? How can you say this? And I almost want to scream through my computer screen to the same guys who are writing the same thing. How can you say this? Interestingly, there's no... Details here in Psalm 11 as to where this should fit in David's life. I kind of like that sometimes where it you know, includes a little detail. This is when he wrote this, when he was in some such cave or whatever. Here there's no, there's no details, there's no uh, clues where, that we could grab out of this and be like, this is probably where this fits. This is, might be where he wrote this. There's no historical context, if you will. Some, if you read commentaries and such, some will situate this at the very tail end of this reign of King Saul. So if you, you don't have to turn there, but if you look at uh, 1 Samuel chapters 20 through about 23, uh, that, that sort of constitutes the, the really waning days when, when Saul's jealousy and hatred for David sort of started to rise to the surface when that started to get more and more known and vocalized, they sort of situate this psalm here, especially perhaps even in 1 Samuel 22 and 23. Because there, the corruption of Saul is on full display, just in short, brief summary form. 1 Samuel 22 and 23, see David running for his life like a fugitive from the very throne he was ordained and anointed to take. We see Saul in those same chapters pursue after him like this crazed, bloodthirsty madman. And we see Saul in those same chapters too also have all of the priests of Israel executed by his own order. It's disintegration. It is truly the foundations are being destroyed. So you could very well situate this psalm there. 
It seems like a moment where that fits. As David peers around the kingdom of Israel and his friends are telling him, you should hightail it. Because the foundations are being destroyed. And the king, he's now your enemy. He wants your head on a platter. Very well. Uh, However, though, as I've been thinking about this on these seven verses, I don't know if this is accurate, so I don't know if this is not inspired for sure, but... I prefer to overlay this psalm actually uh, uh, over another event in David's life, perhaps even more formative of all of the events of his life altogether. That moment in 1 Samuel 17 when he stood up to that giant of the Philistine army, Goliath. Go with me to 1 Samuel 17 because I just want you to see how it sort of fits. This in 1 Samuel 17, is one of the most famous Bible stories of all time, bar none. Seemingly everyone knows the story of David and Goliath from, perhaps you've been very familiar with it from the way VeggieTales retells the story. That's a very accurate version, I'm sure. Or, actually, if you listen to like sports commentators and they're describing a game between an underdog and an overwhelming favorite, what do they say? This is a David and Goliath matchup. It's even used as vernacular in the sports world. It's something that is so common that people probably don't even know uh, what it really means. They just know the phrase. What's intriguing, though, is that this story, this story in 1 Samuel 17, this very familiar account of David standing up in this remarkable, heroic way against this giant of the Philistines, actually, I think, becomes... Even more alive if you kind of view it through the lens of Psalm 11. Notice 1 Samuel 17 verse 1. Just to situate us in this text. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, in in Ephesdemim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat of mail was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. What is so fascinating to me is the description of the giant. We all know we've seen perhaps different depictions of Goliath in various resources or various sources of media. 
But we know that this giant of the Philistine army is this very sinister figure. And we get that from the description about how heavy his mail is, how heavy his spear is, how heavy his shield is, how forceful he is to be able to wield these in battle. It's not just that he's lifting up this spear shaft that's like a weaver's beam. He's able to wield it in war. That's how ferociously strong he is. And indeed, he's a fearsome figure. Striking the hearts of Israel like little puppy dogs. That's how fearful they are. He represents a future of not just defeat, but as he says here, they were going to be in bondage if he won. Therefore, every last word, every last syllable of that monstrous giant on that field in the valley of Elah, every single syllable that he uttered left Israel quaking in their boots. As it says there, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Notice also verse number 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. They were afraid of this guy. Afraid of this giant who stood before them. And indeed, we might say, this scene in the Valley of Elah is very evocative of this scene in Psalm 11. The foundations are being destroyed. That's what that giant represents. He represents a figure who can totally eradicate all of the moorings and the mainstays of this life. And indeed... The similarities are such that even David gets some bad advice from his own brother. Go with me again to, if you're still there, 1 Samuel 17, look at verse 28. David has come down and he's trying to figure out the situation. You know, he's, he's there only to feed his brothers. He's been brought, uh, sent there with provisions from his dad, Jesse, to give his uh, other brothers some, some food and provisions on the battlefront. And notice verse 28, as David is trying to get a lay of the land, figure out what's going on. It says, now Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. As he's trying to figure this out, his brother, his eldest brother, comes and speaks demeaningly at him. Why have you left your puny little job of watching over the sheep? And then come down here with just this little inquisitive eye of what we're doing, the big boys, what we're doing here. You know, I'm sure if you have a younger brother and they are trying to get in on what the older brothers are doing... You can kind of see sometimes how that's annoying. What are you doing here? This is big boy stuff. Just go back. Go play with Legos. Leave us alone. We're doing something important here. And that's sort of the sentiment that Eliab gives his brother here. Gives his brother David. Why, why are you even bothering? Why are you even here? You don't belong here, David. You belong watching over those sheep, that puny little job that dad gives you because he has nothing else better to do with you, David. Just go back, flee like a bird, back to your place. 
You see, we could render the words that David hears from his own brother similarly to how he renders them in Psalm 11. The foundations are being destroyed. The enemy is there right in front of him. And he's being given this advice, just flee. Go away. You don't belong. But what do we find David doing in both passages? And this is what I want to draw out tonight. We find David trusting Hoping, confiding in the Lord Almighty. Notice, if you flip back to Psalm 11, notice the first phrase. He says, in the Lord, I take refuge. In God Almighty, Jehovah, Yahweh, I find my stronghold. How can you say to my soul that I need to flee, that I need to retreat? I have refuge. I have a strong tower. I have a stronghold and a strength in the Lord Almighty. And if you read, and as we're going to see in a few moments, all throughout 1 Samuel 17, that's exactly what David testifies. As I think both of these passages show us much about the state of the world that we live in. And also I think they show us three truths that we can hold close to when it feels as though the foundations are falling apart. When it feels as though the sky is falling. Or if that's the advice that you're getting. So what does David do in Psalm 11? What does David do in 1 Samuel 17? And what are we to do in times like these? Well, notice a couple of things. First of all, number one, the hope of God's dominion. The hope of God's dominion. Go with me in Psalm 11 and notice what David says in response to this, quote unquote, advice that he's given by his friends. They tell him that you should flee. The foundations are being destroyed beyond hope, beyond repair. And David focuses attention in a very specific spot. Notice verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The throne, or excuse me, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. So in direct response to this idea that there is no hope, there is no purpose, what can the righteous do? What does David do? He turns his eyes upward in a look of faith, and there, what does he see? He sees a throne that is occupied, that is filled. He sees by faith that the Lord is seated there, sitting on his throne and ruling with perfect authority. And this image of Jesus on his throne is not one that should indicate his indifference. Maybe you've, have you ever heard that before? That how can God, what, is, what does God mean to me? He's, he's, he's in heaven. He's far too distant, far too unapproachable, far too impersonal to, for me to care or for me to believe or for him to care. Why would I want to believe in a God who's so far away? And how can he know really what's going on? You see, David has the exact opposite of affirmation here. As David says, he affirms that God's on his throne in his temple. But notice, he says, his eyes see. 
His eyelids test the children of man. Yes, he is enthroned, but don't for a second assume that that means that he does not care or notice about you. One commentator puts it like this. That throne is not the place of inactivity, but of supremacy. It does not suggest distance, but dominion. And that's our hope and that's our comfort. Because as he says, his eyes see, his eyelids test. Both of these Phrases imply this very close sort of scrutinization, this examination and interest that God has in the people of this world. It's as if you're holding something up up to your eyes and you're squinting at it to get all a glimpse a, to, to get a glimpse of all of the minute details of that object. If you're trying to work on something super close. You squint your eyes in order to perceive it fully. And that's exactly what this phrase, his eyelids test, imply. That's how God sees you and me. He examines us that closely. And to be sure, this is how David was confident that God always operated. Go back to 1 Samuel 17. Notice verse 31 as he's going to make this stand as he begins uh, seeing the fact that all of his Israelite comrades are shaking in their boots, uh, not wanting to have anything to do with this battle. David is becoming increasingly aware that he has to do it himself. And so notice verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, the king, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let all man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Imagine a young boy walking into your tent. A tent that's filled with generals and captains and men of war. Battle-hardened guys. And this young boy walks in. I'm going to go fight this guy. All of the captains and the generals, they've tried to get their best men. The dude that you know can take out a squadron of bad guys on his own. And even they are not willing to go into the valley. And then this young boy walks in and he says, I will go. You would smirk, probably. Chuckle under your breath. You. And that's exactly what Saul does. Verse 33, you, you are not able to go against this Philistine. To fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. He's been trained to fight. He's been trained with a particular skill to take out everyone, especially the likes of you. But notice David. He says to Saul, verse 34, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there, a lamb, where there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. And struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be one like of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the, the Lord be with you. It must have certainly sounded like a tall tale from this little boy as he strutted in there and said, God's delivered me out of the hands of lions and bears. 
And even I have killed them with my bare hands. And because God has done that, I can surely face up against this giant, this Philistine. He's almost dismissive of the giant, just calling him this Philistine. That's how confident David was in what? The dominion of his God. The hope of God's dominion. He knew from experience it encompassed lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. And he says it can even encompass this Philistine too. That's how sure my hope is. And the dominion of God. And you know that's the same for us. We have a hope in the dominion of God. Because he's still on his throne. Back in Psalm 11, he is in his holy temple. He is sitting on his throne. Some of those same online resources I was telling you about, and I was reading them, it almost made me feel as if that throne is unoccupied. It made me question, did they believe that God has gone away for a second? But you see, that's never the case. Just like David, when we feel as though the moorings of life are quaking, when we feel as though the foundations are being destroyed, when we see a societal pillar after societal pillar fall and crumble, all the morals of this country go to a waste and fall into the ditch. Who can we look to in those moments of crises and know that he is there? The Lord is on his throne, the hope of God's dominion. This is our faith. The faith that remains when everything feels like it's falling apart. Sees the Lord not as aloof, not as as indifferent to our present calamity, but as actively and authoritatively involved in it. And here, that's what David sees. He's not a God who's just sitting idle, sitting cross-legged and just uh, uh, pleasuring, uh, feeding himself and pleasuring himself. We see a God who is examining our moments, who is seeing us, scrutinizing you and I and everyone else in this life. The seat of heaven's throne is not vacant, and nor is it filled by a nonchalant sovereign. It's filled by the King of kings and Lord of lords himself. The hope of God's dominion. Secondly, in Psalm 11, I think we also see not only the hope of God's dominion, but the assurance of God's deliverance. The assurance of God's deliverance. Because David has already resisted, in verse number 4, this idea that he needs to flinch. That he needs to flee. This advice he gets, flee like a bird to your mountain. He says, no, because I know who's on the throne. Because I know who's actually in dominion, even over these moments. And sure, the enemy... They're real. They've already taken an arrow out of the quiver, notched it on the string, and they've already pulled it back. And they're ready to loose it on me. I am in the target. But he says, my faith clings to a God who is greater than my enemies. Notice verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates The wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. 
Yes, this enemy might threaten him with death and violence and darkness. But what does he say? My God, he has something coming for those who are, find themselves encamped with the wicked. Notice David's testimony back in 1 Samuel 17. If you have your finger still there, look at verse 41. He's approached the Philistine. And notice verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David, verse 41, with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and not with spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. What words? David stands up to that man of war who stands there imposingly and ferociously on that battlefield. One small move can make the whole Israelite army flinch. And David says, no worries. I'm going to fell you because of who my God is. And I'm going to cut off your head. And then I'm going to make all of the army that stands behind you uh, birds meet in the field in the valley of Elah. That's how strong and how confident and assured I am of the deliverance of God. What awesome words I think David gives us here. He knows that God had delivered him. He's delivered him in the past. And he's sure that God will deliver him in the future. And he knows for certain as he here testifies the battle is not mine. It's the Lord's. And he, God, alone would make David victorious over that monster Goliath. And that's where David found his assurance. In that justice of God that falls down violently yet righteously to, yes, claim all of the wicked. Those who, it says in Psalm 11, the ones who love violence. Which very much describes this giant Goliath. On those, what does it say? What does David profess would come upon them? Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. It ought to bring up images of that scene in Genesis. The scene of Sodom and Gomorrah. Indeed, that is the inheritance that David says is for those who, yes, continue in their wicked ways. This is one of those passages, I think, that skeptics delight to bring to our attention. You know, we've mentioned this a couple times before, mentioned how there's this 
argument that the God of the Old Testament is this mean, violent, vindictive God that just wants everyone to get off his lawn because he's grumpy. And then there's this God of the New Testament who's Jesus and he's happy and he's comfy and he's cozy and he's love. And people like to drive a wedge in between those two gods. And they would likely point to Psalm 11 to say that, look at what this God likes to do. He likes fire and sulfur and he likes raining coals down on people. How dare he? We, of course, know differently. There's, there's no difference between the gods of both testaments. It's the same God in both. He reveals himself through his son in a manifest appearance of grace. But don't think that grace started in Matthew 1. It's been there from the beginning, from the beginning, from Genesis 3, on the ground of our first parents' sin, when they brought death into this life. Jesus is promised, the one who would crush the serpent, is a promise of grace. And all throughout the Old Testament, God weaves this promise of grace in and around and through his people. And the promise is, if you will return to me, I will be your God and you will be my people. We know that that's the revelation of Scripture, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So, what do we say when we have someone sort of throw out this aspersion that God's just a mean God, He's just a vindictive God? See, look at He likes to rain coals on the on the wicked. Well. For one, I don't think we need to temper down God's judgment. Of course, what David is alluding to here is perhaps what we might see in the end of days. When, yes, the wicked will be judged and judged vehemently because of God's righteousness. As we went through a couple of weeks ago in our study of Malachi, that's exactly what Malachi is talking about. That there is a judgment coming for those who continue to stiff arm the love of God and go into eternity refusing to open their hearts to the love of Jehovah. Their inheritance, their portion, as David says here, is fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. And it's for those who go into eternity loving violence, or as John 3 says, loving darkness rather than light. It's a judgment for the wicked. But the point of all this is, especially in light of 1 Samuel 17, is that our salvation, your salvation, the church's ultimate salvation comes by way of judgment. And we can't get around that. Judgment is our deliverance. When God comes and judges the earth, what do we find hope in? What do we find assurance in? That we who are in the, in the party of the redeemed, if you will, we will be snatched out of that judgment because we have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. It's exactly like an exodus. When the judgment of the firstborn was to come down on all of Egypt and all of the Israelite slaves. Except for those who put the blood on the doorpost over the door. And they were snatched out of that judgment that was put upon them by the angel. It's the same. Our deliverance comes through judgment. That's where our salvation comes from. Because the Son of God took the judgment we deserved on himself. Which means that if you're uncomfortable with the idea of deliverance through judgment, you are uncomfortable with the gospel because that's what the gospel is about. And that's what our hope is. Our assurance comes 
through this God who, yes, because of his righteousness and holiness, will rain down coals on the wicked. And that doesn't mean we like to be sadistic or we love this brutal image. It means that we believe in the unflinching holiness of God. And we also believe that he has made a way of escape out of that judgment. That's what we cling to. Deliverance through judgment. That is our hope. That is our assurance. And David says here that my my confidence is in this God. This God who can do this. That's what his testimony was in the Valley of Elah. That's his testimony here in Psalm 11. The assurance of God's deliverance. The hope of God's dominion. And lastly, number three, and I'll hasten through this. The blessing of God's delight. The blessing of God's delight. Because here David gets to, in the last verse of Psalm 11, this ultimate component of his confidence was this fact of the blessings that he was sure of because he was sure of who his God was. Notice verse 7. For the Lord is righteous He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. This testimony that he gives here, that the Lord is a righteous Lord, the Lord who loves righteous deeds. And he basically just means to imply that this God delights in those who conduct themselves in the ways of righteousness, which, as we know from the the testimony of Scripture, is only possible because this righteous Lord fills people, fills those he loves with his righteousness. So we see it's actually... God delighting in his righteousness that he's dispensed on those who are unrighteous. That's how he's testifying this amazing uh, testimony. The blessings we are experience are blessings that we are given. Our lives are 100% gift. So the righteous and the upright in whom the Lord delights, as David is here testifying, are those to whom he or those whom he makes to stand upright. Those whom he makes righteous. That's the testimony of Scripture that God delights in those whom he can make righteous. And this is exactly, I think, a parallel, or at least in my mind, a A way in which we can read the testimony at the end of this scene with David and Goliath. Go with me to 1 Samuel 18. It's the chapter right after that tumultuous event. We know the story. If Maybe you can sing the song. I won't sing it. Five smooth stones found in the brook and all that kind of stuff. And round and around and around he's he's swung his sling. (laughs) And the stone uh, sunk firmly in the giant's head. And he fell, we know the story. He fell to the ground dead, and he cut off his head. And then David wins the day. It's a massive victory for the people of Israel, but specifically for David. The people of God at least thought so. Notice verse 12 of chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18, verse 12. Notice why Saul is afraid of David. It says Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because The Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him, that is David, from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. 
And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came before them. This is that moment when the jealous rage of Saul began to bubble, began to rise to the surface. As you, if you notice a couple of verses before that, Verse number seven, this is that moment where after this victory over Goliath, Saul and, or, and David are being paraded through the streets. And notice the little ditty that they came up with. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. A scene as massive success. But the historian says it's because of one reason. Not because David is so mighty and fearful and strong and valiant and skilled with a sword or skilled with a spear. It's because the Lord was with him. That's why he was blessed. And that's why he was delighted in by God, because God was with him. And my friends, this is our same hope. This is our same peace. This is our same confidence. That you and I sit and stand in our lives right here, right now. We stand in righteousness because the one who is on that throne that we look to in faith declares us righteous. The king we serve, the king we delight in and believe in, he delights. As David says in Psalm 11, he delights in the righteous. He delights, we could say, in giving and dispensing his blessings of righteousness on those he loves. And the chief blessing he gives those he loves is what, as he says there at the end, shall behold his face. The epitome of Christian hope. Is that we who are seeing, seeing only by faith, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, seeing but through a glass darkly, will one day see this king face to face. Do you know that one day you won't have any more reason for faith? Because you'll be in the presence of this one who is on the throne. There will be no more need for this kind of holy justice because all of this justice will be exacted on all of Satan and his minions and everyone who has taken side with him will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be no more need for this kind of faithful violence and righteousness. It will all be presence. A peaceful presence with this king of all kings. And that is the ultimate blessing that you and I have been given in the promise of God. This unending presence. That's the hope we look to. The hope we have in front of us. The blessing of God's delight in us. A delight that is so strong that he wants to be with us. That is our confidence in these days. These days when it feels like Everything is falling apart. That same commentator I quoted earlier, his name is Dale Ralph Davis. He's an Old Testament scholar, I would say. Very adept at bringing the Old Testament to life. And I found his writings very informative. And on this particular passage, he says this, quote, The foundations may be torn down. But this foundation, the foundation of the temple of the Lord and the word of God remains, he says. 
Despair is managed by keeping Yahweh himself at the center of your vision. That is all that anchors you when the foundations turn to slime. And indeed, when it feels like this world is filled, as Theoden said, such reckless hate. When it feels as if our only resource is to turn and hightail it out of town because the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? There's a giant in front of us. Who can stand up to him? When all of that stands in front of you, we have the hope of God's dominion. We have the assurance of his deliverance and we have the blessing of his delight. And you and I, all of that is for us. That is our hope, that is our peace, that is our stay. So when it feels like all of these foundations of life are quaking, my friends, look up and you'll see a throne that isn't empty. It's filled, filled with this one who delights in you. May he be praised. Let us pray.